This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host, David Wilk. Today I'm talking to David J. Silverman about a new, relatively new book of his called This Land is Their Land, The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving. How are you, David? I'm doing so well. Thank you. So um, before we start talking about the book, um, and I know this is your area of expertise. Uh, you know, you're a, a professor and you've been working on um, American Indian um, uh, history for your career. But I, I, I have to ask, just kind of curio- uh, out of curiosity, what got you interested in the first instance in uh, studying and writing about American Indians? Well, I think the, the most significant influence um was was that of my college professors. Um, I had a really terrific group of history professors and a professor in the, the field of American Indian history in particular when I was an undergraduate at, at Rutgers University and uh, and then when I took my MA at the College of William and Mary. Um, and both of those experiences convinced me that I wanted to go on and get my doctorate and uh, you know, make the... Uh, the study of, of Native American history, my my career pursuit. Um, I think in a in a much more general way, I was always interested in social history, often characterized as history from the bottom up. And what first drew me to history were the, the stories of working class colonial people who rioted in the, the streets of places like Boston and New York and Philadelphia during the imperial crisis leading to the American Revolution and took what had been a, a rather genteel constitutional argument between the colonies and Britain and turned it into something quite a bit more revolutionary. Um, but, you know, as I, as I continued my study of history, what I realized is that the real missing story during the colonial era um, was less that of, of working class white people or even that of, of enslaved Africans. But really, it was the story of indigenous people, uh, the first people, uh, who, after all, were most of the people in, in colonial America, and yet whose story had been neglected by generations of, of American historians. And filling in that gap and, and getting a chance to view America through Native eyes um, struck me as, as endlessly exciting and enlightening, and that's, that's proved to be true. Well, and the, and the book, you, this book, I think, really um, gets to the crux of that through the story of you know, really, I mean, we, as you point out, and as I think uh, a lot of people are becoming more and more aware, the, the um, you know, when we talk about the Plymouth colony, it's not really the founding colony of the United States, as it's often kind of mythologically portrayed. But um, it is still, the, the Wampanoags and the Plymouth colony people are a core story in American history, both sides. <laughs> and, and, um, I think that the, um, the Wampanoag side, which I think you really set out to tell is far different in so many ways from what the less well-informed, uh, you know, kind of, um, um, 
what do I want to call it, sort of the basic historical view of not just of Thanksgiving, but of the early colonial period. It, of course, it is told from the perspective of the of the colonists. That's the first um, distinction. But it, it so distorts um, the nature of Native people who were here before the colon and and kind of the 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 most immediate two hundred years prior to sixteen twenty is completely neglected in these stories. Well, that's right. Uh, you know, and look, like the, the reason that the myth of of Plymouth Colony and of of Native people welcoming colonists to take over their country, the and the reason that's so foundational is that it sanitizes the bloodiness of American colonial history, which is fundamentally about the conquest of indigenous people and the engrossment of their territory. Um, you know, Americans, white Americans, let's be clear, have not wanted to grapple with that truth for centuries. And so no wonder that they constructed this myth, which is about religiously oriented family groups of, of religious refugees coming to America and then bloodlessly acquiring native territory um, <laughs> with native consent. And right. that's fundamentally what the myth is all about. Uh, and, you know, when I say, you know, it's important to give these stories to Wampanoag eyes, neither Wampanoags at the time nor Wampanoags since that time, right up to this very day, have ever bought that story. And they've been telling anyone who could, who would listen, that it wasn't true, and that they had an alternative view on this. One of the main contentions of of my book is that it's it's high time for us to take heed of that that perspective. And you know, when I was reading this book, I, it was Thanksgiving time. I was reading in November, and I, you know, I actually took the. I mean, I, I have I. It, this story was known to me. I've been around New England my whole life, and I've spent time on Martha's Vineyard, and I've you know been to Wampanoag communities, and I I know I've known some Pequot people in Connecticut, and mm-hmm. um, and other you know America Amer- uh, the other Americans, the original Americans. So even though I've thought about this before, I think I was you brought it home to me in a really powerful way, and I've really I've been uncomfortable with Thanksgiving. For for a long time, um, and I, I, it occurred to me that we could actually call it Wampanoag Day. <laughs> um, and I've, I've, I've started to. I've actually, I, I sent an email out to all my friends saying I'm not celebrating Thanksgiving anymore. I'm celebrating Wampanoag Day. Well, you know, let me be perfectly clear. I, I'm not opposed to the holiday of, of Thanksgiving. Um, not, not at all. I enjoy Thanksgiving as as much of, as the next guy. Um, but I am contending in this book, though, is that if we're going to insist on attaching the holiday, you know, getting together with family and friends, feasting and giving thanks for the good in our lives, if we're going to insist on attaching that ritual to the story of Plymouth and the Wampanoags, the very least we can do is get the history right. Now, I I, I don't think we need to attach the holiday to that story. Uh, One of the points that I make in this book is that uh, up until the late 1800s, Americans celebrated Thanksgiving with no reference whatsoever to Plymouth and Indians. That's a fairly recent invention. And so we could very well continue on with traditional Thanksgivings by not acknowledging this myth at all. 
Um, but if we are going to invoke this story, let's get it right. And I think if we do get it right, it's it's going to be a, a far less um, uh, uh, uplifting story than many Americans would prefer. Well, and you do, I think you do a really good job without, you know, rehashing everything in the book, which is pretty, I, I think, pretty comprehensive and pretty powerful. I, I was struck by, there were a few things that really came through to me that I thought would be really interesting to talk about. One is, and of course, other you know uh, books. Other books have begun to document um, and try to go back and figure out the um, uh, eth- you know the um, the population levels of Native American cultures prior to first contact. Clearly, many more people were here than were here in 1620 when the Pilgrims arrived, because there had already been contact between, um, uh, as you point out. Um, essentially raiders, um, fisher, you know, uh, fishing boats, um, explorers, all of whom had had contact with uh, tribes along the East Coast and had given them diseases so that by the time um, of the arrival of the pilgrims, the Wampanoags and, and other tribes like the Narragansetts, Pequots, Mohicans, all of them had really had devastating um uh, uh, diseases just before the arrival of the pilgrims. So it made the pilgrims, it, it changed the entire nature of the relationship at that particular moment. I think that's right. Uh, you know, I think most Americans assume that the contact between the Mayflower passengers and the Wampanoags was a first contact episode. And, you know, the reason they assume that is that the way the story has been transmitted over the generations uh, makes no acknowledgement whatsoever that the Wampanoags had a long, dynamic history, thousands of years old, until Europeans arrived, and that the Wampanoags had experienced a century, a full century of contact with Europeans before the Mayflower arrives off Cape Cod. As you know, you know that those contacts between coastal New England Indians and Europeans during that century were largely violent. To be sure, you know some of these Europeans um, were there to fish or to explore, but when they made contact with indigenous people, almost invariably, those relations turned violent, usually because Europeans assume the worst in unintelligible native uh, native gestures or speeches, um, or because the Europeans wanted to seize native people as captives, um, sometimes for training as interpreters and guides for future ventures, but sometimes to sell into slavery in, in Europe. And, you know, indeed, um, two of the most famous characters from the meeting of the Mayflower passengers and the Wampanoags, uh, Samoset, and Squanto spoke English already um, because they had had long-standing contacts with with Europeans. And in the case of Squanto, and possibly Samoset, we're not sure, but certainly in the case of, of Squanto, he had been to England. He, uh, he indeed he had been to Spain first, and then England. He had lived in England for years as a captive. Uh, had learned English, had learned the culture of these people, and managed to finagle a return back home just months before the appearance of of the Mayflower. 
Now, the other point about these early contacts that you raise is the introduction of European epidemic diseases to Native American populations. And here, I think uh, you're on to an important point that that the, the epidemic of 1616 to 1619, we're not sure what the identity of the disease was, but we think it might have been smallpox. But that epidemic devastated coastal New England peoples uh, from southern Maine all the way to modern-day Rhode Island, including the Wampanoag people. Um, in the case of the Wampanoags, they lost almost certainly a majority of, of their population. So, you know, they were seriously hobbled before the English arrival. What that meant is that intertribal dynamics on the ground in New England were in flux when the Mayflower arrived. In particular, the Wampanoag's Narragansett rivals to the west, and the Narragansetts lived in what's now modern Rhode Island. The Narragansetts had not contracted the disease. Their population was still strong, and they were using this advantage to raid the Wampanoags in an effort to reduce them to the status of tributaries or subordinates. And so the Wampanoags, despite their long history of violence at European hands, looked to the Mayflower passengers as potential military and trade allies to, to offset the Narragansett threat. I should also emphasize one point, and I, and I, I think this is, is critical here. Though the Wampanoags have been devastated by this disease and their numbers were reduced, they still, their numbers still dwarfed those of the English when the English arrived. The English were only 100 people on the Mayflower, and they lost half their numbers uh, before three months were up. The Wampanoags outnumbered them by a factor of, of upwards of 20. So, um, you know, let's, uh, let's be clear that the Wampanoags were still in firm control of their own country, at least vis-a-vis -vis the English. Right, and, and as you point out, they, um, they thought, they took, they th you know, there was this sort of interesting dynamic where the uh, uh, the Wampanoags in reduced state saw the uh, English as potentially uh, valuable allies to cultivate, and I think there was the sense that Massasoit had, who was the sachem of the, or at least the chief sachem, not the only one, but that he saw the opportunity to take advantage of the English and really um, befriended them for purposes of his own. His purpose, right, was to strengthen the Wampanoags against their intertribal enemies. You know, the myth of the Thanksgiving is that Indians welcome the English so that they can launch colonial New England and then, by extension, launch the United States as a great democratic beacon of religious liberty for the rest of the world to model. Let's be clear. Nothing of the sort was happening on the ground in the 1620s. The Wampanoags want to harness this small settlement of foreigners to their own purposes with the expectation that they would always serve to strengthen the Wampanoags regionally against other tribal peoples. That was why the Wampanoags allowed that community to survive in their own country. And, and of course, it took them about 50 years to discover you know, the kind of, uh, we'll call it, it's hard to call it a mistake, uh, because it's, there's a certain inevitability about the British, um, uh, numbers, you know, that they were, they were, you know, their excess population and their goal of, of conquest was pretty, um, 
inescapable. And there were the numbers of people that they were able to send over here was just unimaginable to any of the indigenous people who were even thinking about how, I mean, because there were opponents to Massasoit's view among other um, members of the Wampanoags and uh, certainly members of other tribes who wanted to just wipe out the uh, white people before they could establish themselves. But even so, there was no way for them to know what was going to happen over the course of the next 50 years. And nor could they imagine the degree which you document of the English ability to lie, cheat, and steal and take the land away from the native people. Right. The only Wampanoags who, who could have could possibly have projected this out were those who had been to England and back. And there were two of them on the ground in 1620. One of them, Squanto, or Tisquantum, as, as he was known. And there was another one named Epenau, who lived on Martha's Vineyard, who had also spent several years as a captive in London and made it back to New England. But yeah, I have to imagine that most of their, their tribes people wouldn't have believed their stories about the size of English society and about the resources on which English society could, could, um, could draw. And you know, let, let's understand the context in which Plymouth was founded. Up to that point, the only English colony in North America that had survived was Jamestown. And Jamestown was not a very impressive place for his first couple of decades. Um, indeed, the English there, even at one point, in large part because of poor relations with the surrounding natives, had pulled up stakes and were sailing back home um, when they were confronted with a, a flotilla of reinforcements who told them to turn around and, and give it another try. The English had attempted other, and, and the French for that matter, had attempted to found other colonies in New England over the previous years, and those colonies had failed. And so Native people had no reason to believe that allowing the Mayflower passengers to establish a settlement on Plymouth Harbor would eventually lead to what I characterize as a swarming. During the, the decade of the 1630s, somewhere upwards of 15 to 20,000 English, mostly Puritans, um, arrive in Massachusetts Bay and quickly begin reproducing at a rate that you know, would have astounded Native people. Uh, the, the, the English women of this so-called Great Migration had on average eight children over the course of their adult lives. That's a recipe for a population explosion. Now, meanwhile, Native people are being afflicted by European epidemic diseases one after another, and their population is in steep decline. No one could have projected this out, including, by the way, the English. Um, all of this was highly contingent. Right. Well, no, and I think a lot of what, you know, as the English population increases also, I, I thought a lot about this in reading the book, that the, you know, you think about cultural decline as well as, um, uh, you know, kind of loss of land. They're, uh, you know, they, first of all, they're not able to maintain their cultural, um, uh, kind of op the operations of culture, you know, the, 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 they're not able to grow crops because they're under pressure all the time from the British who are stealing from them, taking their land. Uh, they have to make war, but then they lose their, um, you know, the men go out and fight, but they can't raise, uh, they can't, you know, they, they can't raise vegetables um, or, or, or hunt. There's all the, uh, there's so much pressure on the indigenous 
tribal um, culture at the same time as uh, the British are coming with more and more um, strength and more and more equipment and getting better. You know, it's sort of the scale tips and the British become, um, or the colonial, they're no longer British, but the colonial people just um, take over during that 17th century. Right. And, you know, and here I think it's important to note here that, you know, I think most modern Americans are teleological in the way that they think about this history. In other words, they they start with the conclusion and assume that the history was always moving in that direction. But Native people never assumed that they would live under colonial dominance. Their assumption was that these people were the, were coming to Indian country to live under Indian rule, to live according to Native customs for the benefit of Native people. That's why they allowed these people to gain a foothold in their country. But what happens next is, you know, the English population begins growing like Topsy. English cattle begins overrunning native bounds, even beyond the boundaries that, that the English had, had purchased or swindled from, uh, from native people. And as the English population is becoming the majority, the English begin asserting their jurisdiction over native people and other, and including on the eve of, of King Philip's war of 1675, 76, which is uh, really the, the, uh, the key crisis in, in the story, the English are even getting to the point where they're, uh, arguing that they have the right to try crimes between native people committed within native territory which is really a raising of the stakes. And so on the eve of this war, Native leaders like Usamequins or Massasoit's son, Pometacom, better known to uh, most of your listeners as Philip or King Philip or Metacom, he's saying, look, if we don't act now, we are going to be landless and they are going to reduce us to slaves. And he was right. All one has to do is look at other corners of colonial North America to see that that was absolutely true. And so he decides to go to war against the English, believing correctly that he had very little to lose. Yeah. No, I think it's a very, it, you know, it's a kind of, um, I mean, it's, I don't even know whether to call it sad, but it's a, a kind of tragic story uh, of conquest, literally of conquest, but also, you know, it, 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 as you kind of, gauge the the worth and the moral values of the conquerors it's pretty profoundly delusional that they were they deluded them so the british the colonial people are deluding themselves into their beliefs that they were you know they have the god-given right to do what they did and it's it's hard sometimes to understand how one can convince oneself of one's own essential rectitude to that, to the level that you're willing to literally kill other people in your own behalf. Well, you know, the English and, you know, most of, of their European contemporaries um, divided the world into two types of binaries. They thought of themselves as Christians and the other peoples of the world as pagans. And they thought of themselves as civilized and the other peoples of the world as savages. And in their minds, 
Christian civilized people had the grant from God to dominate those who were pagans and savages. And so in that context, their might made right. Um, and so, you know, there was very little compunction in, in, uh, in this kind of, of conquest. And, you know, that's a cautionary tale for today. And that's oh, one of yes, the reasons it is. it's so important for us today to teach this history in all of its disturbing characteristics, because it makes us more humble and humane. It allows, it gives us a more critical eye to ask ourselves, what assumptions are we making to elevate our own self-worth and diminish those of the people we seek to dominate? Exactly right. I think that's a very profound thing that you just said, because it, it is often uh, dismissed as um, a kind of weak-minded historicity to look back at this, you know, at this period of conquest. I think there's a lot of um, trans projection and transformation of what might otherwise be guilt uh, as a, you know, it's a way of pushing away responsibility for what others did that you, you are benefiting from. Well, well, that's absolutely right. And, you know, let's, uh, let's add another element to this, this discussion as well. Um, I know it's often said that the victors write the history, but that's no longer true. Uh, you know, we have opened up the writing of history to people from all walks of life and all perspectives. And, you know, over, over the years, um, that development combined with the various civil rights movements of, of you know, the last half century have awakened a, a critical mass of non-Native Americans to the very basic fact that Native people are countrymen and countrywomen. They hold a distinct place within the United States, but from the perspective of nationality, they are us. And so using a, a, having a national myth attached to a national holiday, in, which is asking the rest of American society to identify with the English as we, while casting Native people as they, is diminishing our Native countrymen and women to second-class status. It's, it's morally wrong as well as factually wrong. I agree. And, yeah, you know, I, I was at a, um, an event in New Haven not that long ago. It was a talk by Rebecca Solnit, who uh, she talked about mapping in a, you know, a project that she's involved with. And what was interesting to me was that the a person who introduced her as a geographer who, um, at the outset of the talk, identified the land that we were that we were standing on as originally owned by the Quinnitiquette people. And she did that as a way of focusing our attention on the kind of historical point that you're making right now. And that is that um, the people that were, the people that were here have not gone away. They are still, there are still American Indians on a fairly large scale in America who have active lives and who live uh, their cultural values. And I think, it, it, you know, a part of this sort of mythology that we are looking to try to um, uh, kind of reinterpret, I think, is to bring back the, to bring forward the notion that 
uh, Indians have not just disappeared. You know that they they may have been conquered and lost uh, uh, prominence in their own country, but they're still here. And the places which are around us are named for them by them and are still inhabited in some cases by those people. That's right. If, if, if you live anywhere in the Western Hemisphere, all your daily life plays out on indigenous land. And it is always worth keeping that in mind. And you know, no American should be able to uh, pass through school and receive a history education without a basic understanding of what people's land it is on which one lives which one school is, um, in, in which one state is, um, and to explain how it came that Native people are no longer in possession of most of that land. Every American should be able to identify the Native groups within his or her state. And if there aren't any federally recognized groups within his or her state, they should be able to explain how that came to be. And equally to the point, we should be able to we should be able to narrate native perspectives on American history, not only at the point of contact when native people were strong and autonomous, but throughout the centuries, all the way up to the present day. They shouldn't just play a cameo role during the month during Native American History Month in, in November, um, as tied to the Thanksgiving story. Native people have been an essential part of American history throughout. American history. And I, I, I believe that's how it should be taught. Right. And I, I think there are lots of stories that I, that I agree with you. I think there are lots of stories that are contemporaneously um, uh, valuable. Uh, you know, that, you know, when you think about Standing Rock and, and, um, uh, and you think about uh, the, the, you know, the uranium miner mining in, in uh, uh, Arizona and Utah, there are stories there that are really important to be told because they're contemporaneous. They, you know, they're part of our, you know, current life, not just, um, and I don't mean to not only our history, but you know, they're, they're with us today. That's right. That native native people are modern. They have adapted. They've passed through the apocalypse as, as you know, what one scholar puts it, um, and are now with us forever. Um, and so, you know, we need to adjust our histories to, to take account of, of that basic fact. You know, one of the points that I try to, to make in this book is that uh, King Philip's War of 1675-76 is not the end of the Wampanoag story. That for them, colonialism continued and indeed has, has continued up to this very day because they're still fighting for their, their land. Um, their political autonomy and their their own cultural self determination, and I trace that that struggles through the centuries, all the while pausing on occasion to listen to listen to Wampanoag voices critiquing the myth making that white Americans were creating surrounding this story of of pilgrims and Indians in the 1620s. Yeah, I think I I'm, and I think that's important that you did it with Wampanoag. Um, stories because it is, you know, you're therefore working with the kind of raw material that is so much a part of this, this particular uh, foundational mythology. Um, 
And I think that's really valuable. I also think that there's it lend it leads one to begin to think a little bit more clearly about what reparations might look like. You know, what kind of land uh, um, return could be possible, um, so that there could be um, a kind of re- a little bit of rebalancing. You know, it's it would even only be a small bit, but I think it's still something that really should be discussed. Well, I think truth and reconciliation begins with the truth. And you know, part of what I'm trying to do here is uh, ask Americans to have a, a truthful reckoning uh, with this this uncomfortable history. Um, you know, in terms of bringing Wampanoag voices to the, the fore in this history, I think some of your listeners might be surprised that that's even possible. Um, from the perspective of, of historical methodology. And you know, here I, I want to emphasize, it's not always possible to recover Native American stories that should be told because the records don't permit us to do that. But one of the interesting features of, of Wampanoag history is that Wampanoags have had a knack for getting their points across, even in their points across, even in records controlled by people who didn't have their best interests at heart, from the very beginning of the colonial era up to this day. What's more, Wampanoag people began to acquire formal literacy from a very early date, beginning in the, the 1650s. And so as a result, left a surprising amount of their own records um, for historians like myself to use. And, you know, that's been invaluable in pursuing this project. Not least of all, modern Wampanoag people have made themselves quite visible and accessible every Thanksgiving season for a great many decades. And so, you know, their writings are available. They appear in newspaper interviews. You go on YouTube, they, you know, the, what you can find videos that they've made or, or television interviews that they've conducted. So the, their voices are accessible as a matter of historical record over the past 400 years. Yeah, that's really. I think that's really good. Have did you now? Have you learned uh, any Wampanoag uh, um, language as part of your work? The, the the story of the Wampanoag language is is fascinating and very much a part of of this history that uh, that that I'm telling. So, you know, the Wampanoag language, as Wampanoag people would put it today, um, went to sleep in the in the mid-19th century. You know, contemporary white people said that it was dead. Um, but it wasn't dead because it's been awakened in in the last 20 years by, by Wampanoag people as part of this Wampanoag language uh, reclamation project, a revitalization of the Wampanoag language. Uh, there were no indigenous speakers in, in the 20th Century and yeah, I recount in my book that the you know the main reason for this is that the English and then their white American successors reduced Wampanoag people to near landlessness and debt peonage, and then took advantage of Wampanoag indebtedness to force Wampanoag people and their children into indentured servitude to white families. And as a result, a critical mass of Wampanoag children. We're growing up in English language only settings, and over the course of of a century plus, the damage to the Wampanoag uh, language was was measurable. 
Um, but in recent decades, the Wampanoags have drawn on the historical record in the Wampanoag language. And that includes, by the way, the first Bible ever printed in North America. It's in the Wampanoag language. It includes religious tracts produced by English missionaries in collaboration with Wampanoag people um, uh, to produce sermons and, and religious instructional uh, tracts for Wampanoag people. It includes manuscript records of Wampanoags themselves kept in the late 17th and the 18th centuries. Wampanoag people have drawn on those records to reconstruct their language, and they are now holding immersion schools for their own children and teaching the Wampanoag language at Mashpee High School on, on Cape Cod. To get your original question, um, I have not learned the Wampanoag language because the Wampanoags teach it only to other Wampanoag people. Mm, okay. It is their language for their people, and I certainly respect that decision. Uh, nevertheless, I have used Wampanoag language documents, uh, which other scholars have, have translated um, as a fundamental part of my research. Oh, this is, it's really, I love this book. I really want to thank you for writing it. And I'm, yeah, this is going to cause me to read some of your other writing, but I'm, I really appreciate uh, having the chance to talk to you about this book. Thank you. Thank you so much for your interest. This has been Writer's Cast. I've been talking to David J. Silverman about This Land is Their Land, the Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the troubled history of Thanksgiving. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.